You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Come Monday, the city intends to enforce a law aimed at curbing illegal vacation rentals in neighborhoods. This comes after a federal judge, Derek Watson, in, uh, issued an injunction to block provisions of part of an ordinance that increases the 30-day rental period to 90 days. Mayor Rick Blangiardi vows the city will crack down on illegal operators who scoff at efforts to rein in short-term rentals and that violators will face stiff fines. Uh, HPR reporter Casey Harlow was at the mayor's press conference. He joins us in studio this morning. Hi. Good morning. Yes, a lot to unravel uh, with this, uh, how the city is going to move forward with addressing short-term vacation rentals. Uh, So I guess right off the bat, uh, still 30 days uh, for now, uh, the Blangiardi administration won't be appealing the injunction. Instead, they're going to be doubling down on those enforcement efforts, as you alluded to. Uh, If they find that you are advertising illegally uh, for an illegal rental, it's $5,000 on that first day, and they'll give you a day to take that ad down. Every uh, advertisement, if you per- as Blangiardi said, if you persist, it is $10,000 a day, every day thereafter. And if those fines aren't paid, the city will put a lien on your property. Not saying that that's what he wants to do. He hopes that people will become legal and will operate within the uh, ordinance, but that is the ground rules at this point, as uh, Mayor Blangiardi has stated. And I know DPP, um, Department of Planning and, and Permitting, you know, they have lots of vacancies, and I was worried that they weren't going to be able to hire those uh investigators that they're calling them, right, to right. actually crack down on these people. Right, exactly. And uh, I remember I spoke with Don Takeuchi Apuna uh, maybe a month or two back, and she said that they hired seven full-time people to investigate and uh, complaints and properties. And um, there's also a lot of uh, other things as well that DPP is going to be doing in order to crack down on these things. Uh, Takeuchi Apuna has uh, said that DPP is fine. They're going to be uh, laying these uh, enforcement rules out. And Mayor Blangiardi also is confident that they will be able to uh, enforce. We feel comfortable right now with our team of seven starting out because in addition to that, we've employed a short-term rental computerized monitoring system. Now, this is going to sweep 60 websites, and it's going to be able to identify for us names and addresses and everything else that we need to know. And in addition to this, right, uh, remember the city has a memorandum of understanding with Airbnb and Verbo uh, on illegal rentals, and they have to have the permit numbers on the advertisement, and they have to be in these uh, legally uh, exempted resort areas as well. So the city is working with these platforms as well. Yeah, it's similar to what I think Maui was doing, Maui County, because they were kind of ahead of the curve and, and kind of set the pace for what everybody maybe should be doing. Exactly. And uh, I believe Kauai also has something similar. Uh, not entirely sure about Hawaii Island. Hawaii Island has its own um, kind of rules and regulations when it comes to uh, Airbnb and um, short-term vacation rental. Yeah, homes. I think I, they're getting a, a top to bottom, you know, once over as well to figure out, you know, how do they, how do they make it right? Right, exactly. And um Another thing, uh, those uh, seven uh, seven person staff at DPP, former uh, inspectors, former investigators, uh, they have that experience of 
doing an investigation, and I spoke with Don Takuchi of Puna yesterday regarding uh, how this investigation process is taken into account. And one is uh, with the complaints uh, that they get or with that uh, computer monitoring system, they will uh, investigate, they'll reach out to the host, they'll reach out to the people who made the complaint. They, there's a whole process behind that as well. Uh, but in addition to this, right, there was also a call out uh, yesterday from Mayor Blangiardi for residents uh, who believe that maybe a unit or a house is an illegal vacation rental. And there is a phone number and they are really calling people out to say, hey, if you see something, say something. And this is what Mayor Blangiardi had to say. We really need the people to help us. Now look, I believe in the greater good and I believe in doing things, you know, for that purpose. And I also believe in the goodness in people. And I don't think that people want to have liens on their home. And I don't think that they want to feel overrun either. And we're look, not looking to harass anybody or to, to punish anybody, but we've got to take control of this situation. And we will, because we're, not, we're going to be unyielding in our efforts here. So everything remains intact. There was a lot of speculation as to what did that preliminary injunction mean to us. What that preliminary injunction mean to us is just we have to continue that in court. But we begin enforcement as we had planned to do so this coming Monday with as much aggression as we possibly can and more so than ever before. So he's really drawing that line in the sand. Exactly. And, um, you know, Blanche already says he doesn't care what did or didn't happen in the past. It's all about now and going forward. And in addition to that, you know, rental property owners who are in these legally exempted uh, resort zoned areas, so Waikiki, Turtle Bay, Ko'olina, they have to register with the city. That's part of this new ordinance in order to be legal. And they have to have that permit and they have to register with the city. So the registration for these owners also goes live on Monday. And they have to go to honolulu.gov slash DPPSTR. And they have to register with the city. And that registration fee is $1,000. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, what if folks, let's say, have people in their units that are booked for next week? <laughs> yeah, uh, I have been getting a lot of messages about that as well. And uh, from what I've been told uh, from the mayor's office, it's basically on the visitor to understand that uh, they have to uh, have they have to have the permit number. They have to be in these areas. They have to know that this is happening. Otherwise, you know, Airbnb's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the host uh, will face the fines, but the visitor will ultimately be on the short end of the stick. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with that. All right. Well, thank you so much, um, Casey. Uh, and if you want to uh, find out more, you can head to our website. Uh, meanwhile, neighborhood groups who push back on the proliferation of unpermitted vacation rentals uh, have asked the court to allow them to join the city's legal fight. Attorney Sharon Lovejoy filed a motion in federal court on behalf of High Good Neighbor, uh, including uh, Hawaii's Thousand Friends, Save Oahu's Neighborhoods, Keep It Kailua, and Save North Shore Neighborhoods. And we did reach out to Greg Kugel, who represents the Hawaii Legal Short-Term Rental Alliance, and that includes Elite Pacific Properties, who filed the federal challenge on the 90-day restriction, but have not yet heard back.
On the next Fresh Air Weekend, we remember Angela Lansbury. The Murder, She Wrote star died earlier this month at the age of 96. She was also an accomplished stage actress and won Tony Awards for her performances in Gypsy and Sweeney Todd. Also, New Yorker staff writer Wa Shu talks about his new memoir, Stay True. Join us. Fresh Air Weekend begins Sunday afternoon at 1. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know how much you know about World Polio Day. It's held every year on October 24th and was started by Rotary International to raise awareness about the polio vaccination and the efforts to eradicate the disease. This debilitating affliction can spread from person to person and infects the spinal cord. While rates of polio have dropped 99% since 1988, the preventable disease continues to exist and impact lives. Almost 85% of the cases end in paralysis. And while there is no known cure, highly effective vaccinations can prevent this disease. Dr. Jonas Salk is widely credited as being the first to develop one of the first successful vaccinations. And today, Hawaii's polio immunization rate sits at 88% putting us fourth from the bottom compared to the rest of the country. So for today's quiz, do you know why World Polio Day is held on October 24th? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Pick up a reusable HPR tote bag if you're the first one to get it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. check. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story today about money raised in the gubernatorial race. Reporter Blaze Level joins us today. Good morning, Blaze. How you doing? Hey, morning, Catherine. It's actually kind of funny because just after we got off the sound check for this show just a few minutes ago, Josh Green actually filed another notice for what? another fundraiser <laughs> today at <laughs> about 1230 at the Pacific Club. Uh, let me see. I've got it right here. Suggested contribution per person $1,000. So as you can see, you know, these events can be pretty lucrative for candidates, especially those running for governor. Well, your article today says that he's held more fundraisers than any other candidate in the last 10 years. 
Yeah, and today's fundraiser will definitely put him over the top. <laughs> you know, he's he's most definitely the most prolific fundraiser in the last decade. He's held about 80 events um, in the last 10 years. That's more than any other candidate. And 50 of those, so the vast majority, have come in the last four years while he was campaigning for governor. You know, his first on the campaign trail was at, you know, a swanky uh, restaurant in downtown San Francisco, and the office slot was right there, governor. So, you know, he's he's been planning this for a long time. Time, and it seems like it's paid off. His campaign has raked in about $3.4 million uh, during the election season, so since November 2018. And it seems that these fundraising events can be really effective, not just for raising money, but also for building support. I spoke to one construction executive uh, the other day who said he donated to Josh Green after he heard him speak at a fundraiser. You know, um, he Green talked about how he was a medical doctor. He talked about his policy stances on issues. And, you know, this executive that wanted to go uh, listen to him, uh, I don't think he's donated to Green before, but he's, he said that, you know, hearing him speak at this event that he was invited to, uh, it, it helped sway him. Hmm, interesting. Well, he's a good communicator. Uh, and um, I guess if you can convince people to, um, you know, drop some money, <laughs> more power to you, yeah, I of guess. Course. Right, and, and that's uh, you know also sort of the the point of campaign contributions, but also I think the concern from you know the public because uh, those in the political know know that a lot of the campaign contributions that people make it's really about access. You know, with Civil Beat we called a bunch of these donors for both Josh Green and Dukeona, and surprise, surprise, most of them didn't want to talk to us about why they're donating to these candidates. But like I said, you know, the people in the know know that it's really about access. It's it valuable to be able to pick up the phone and call the governor and have them return your call or ask for a meeting and have them meet with you, you know, and listen to you. And obviously, they'll do that for, um, you know, a lot of their constituents. But if you are able to, you know, buy a fundraising ticket where you could introduce yourself in person to them at an event that might stick in their mind and, you know, it might get you a little bit closer to their circle. And, you know, obviously, that doesn't mean, you know, they're uh, slipping money under the table to any of these candidates. It's really about buying access, and they won't get everything that they want, but at least getting a politician to listen to you, you know, some of the time, that's super valuable, especially if you're a lobbyist where, you know, your job is all about getting politicians to listen to you. Um, and obviously, lobbyists are also big time donors here. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. Who are uh, some of the other uh, usual suspects, I guess, that uh, that cough up money? Yeah, of course. So, you, you know, banks um, donate a lot to candidates. I think one of Josh Green's biggest donors were executives at First Hawaiian. Uh, this year, since 2018, I'm sorry, this election period since 2018, the top um, corporate uh, donor was RM Towell, the mm-hmm. big engineering firm. Executives there contributed, I think, over $200,000 to various campaigns, Green about Green got about $25,000 of that. And we also found that they received about $45 million worth of state contracts during the same time period. So, again, it's about this access. It's not necessarily, you know, paying someone off. But there is this concern when contractors are also making big-time donations. And the Standards Commission that, you know, the legislature created, they're trying to address that by um, trying to put an end to that practice. And what about uh, out-of-state donors? 
And that's a good point. It's not just people in state. You know, Green has gotten the most money from out of state, too. About a million dollars has come from outside sources. You know, there's that big health company named Nomi Health that USA Today did a big project on looking at their contracts with Republican states. Another large corporation donating was Centene Corp. They're an insurance company. They do business locally as the Ohana Health Plan. And then what about uh, Iona? How are his coffers? Uh, not looking as well as Josh Green's. I think he's raised about 170 grand this election season. Uh, you know, not as much obviously since he was lieutenant governor. Most of his donations have come from uh, you know business owners of uh, owners of coffee farms and of of car dealerships. But they're a far cry from where he was a decade ago. So really, uh, like just a few thousand versus. Uh, uh Tens of thousands compared to Josh. Green. Yeah, uh, and in fact, Iona raised about the same amount as Josh Green did in uh, 2010. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll see uh, what happens uh, come the general, because sometimes it's not always what you pay. Uh, uh, you know, as far as campaign ads, they, they actually get you a spot. That's right. We've learned that this election season. In <laughs> fact. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks again. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. To read full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu since 1964. Committed to helping preserve the island's land, ocean, and culture with its Kahala Initiative for Sustainability, Culture, and the Arts. KahalaResort.com If a new poll is right, it's looking more likely that Republicans will take control of at least the House. So what would be on their agenda? I'm David Green, later Dahlia Lithwick on her new book, Lady Justice. And are college campuses really safe spaces for honest political debates? Join Moa Lathy, Sarah Isker, and me for Left, Right, and Center. Beginning this evening at 7, following All Songs Considered. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and the Department of Health reports that 13% of the population has experienced domestic violence. Of those victims, 65% are women, 35% are men. Angela Mercado is the executive director of the Hawaii State Coalition Against Domestic Violence. She says her dedication to the issue comes from growing up as a young Puerto Rican girl in New York's public housing and witnessing the financial struggles of women. She spoke with the conversation, Stephanie Hahn, about how domestic violence is defined and why this issue affects all of us. How is the recent economic situation impacting domestic violence? violence survivors. When you look at the dynamics of power and control, which is a fundamental uh, basis of domestic violence, 
the pressures of unemployment, the pressures of high rate, high um, rising prices due to inflation is definitely having an impact in the family dynamics, and we're seeing more survivors seeking services and emergency shelter. The subject, domestic violence as a part of everyday conversation, isn't necessarily seen as a huge public priority. How might actions that might be taking place in the privacy of the home potentially impact public life, if at all? You know, I've been reading up, obviously, on it, and I came across a term, you know, reproductive coercion, and I started to think about this, and I'm hoping you might be able to explain to the audience this role of public and private and uh, how we might rethink domestic violence. So with respect to Roe v. Wade, you know, one of the Hawaii is lucky that we have one of the states that protects um, our right to abortion in our, con- in our state constitution, and we do have resources available in the state. But what a lot of people don't know is that uh, reproductive coercion is actually a form of intimate partner violence. So what's reproductive coercion? So reproductive coercion looks a couple of different ways. Um, It's rooted, again, in the power and control dynamics, and it's when one partner is trying to control the other partner's reproductive health. It looks like withholding, hiding, or removing, or even destroying your partner's contraceptives, such as birth control pills, IUDs, patches, and rings, also known as birth control sabotage. You could also um, have a partner that's intentionally or secretly removing a condom during sex, also known as stealthing. And also to threaten a relationship if a partner doesn't want to have sex. So another aspect of that is forcing a partner to have or not to have abortion against their will. So in this country, 8.4% of the women in this country have experienced reproductive coercion in their lifetime. Uh, Data in Hawaii is that about one in six women have experienced intimate partner violence around the time of their pregnancy. So there definitely is a correlation, and we definitely need to be looking out for that in our community. How is your organization this month raising public awareness? And we've produced two brochures. One of them is a guide on healthy relationships, and that's really an attempt to talk about what a healthy relationship looks like versus an unhealthy relationship and the ultimate goal there is to inform people without stigmatizing them and then we have another brochure and it is um, how to respond to disclosures of domestic violence and that's really written for the general public to understand how to respond how not to be judgmental how to respect the privacy etc when people share this information so we've actually translated that into several different languages a couple of languages are still in process but we've really looked at what are some of the underserved communities in our in our state so we have uh, translated these materials in two keys Ilocano, Tagalog, Japanese, Korean, Spanish. We have Marshallese coming. Um, we also have ASL soon to be posted on our website. And you know, we are working especially with the library because they know which communities have the strongest language requests and also distributing our materials in that manner. How might we define this concept of domestic violence? In other words, 
are, is it gender specific? Are there women who are domestic violence perpetrators and who can receive help in this way? So um, domestic violence could also include elder abuse. It can include abuse amongst family members who are related by blood. And the definition also used to include spouses. So you had to be married in order to be able to claim that you are a uh, survivor or victim of domestic violence. And over time that has broadened because we know that many relationships are not um, bonded through uh, official marriage, but they can be Common law of relationships, or you know what you're going to hear a lot more of, and I said it earlier, intimate partner violence. So that means that you have an intimate relationship with someone, or you have a dating relationship with someone. And a lot of what we tend to focus on is that non-blood relationship. It is that relationship where there is an inter- intimate or dating connection. With respect to gender, so we definitely, um, we recognize, and the movement started off really focusing on women who were um, survivors of domestic violence. And we still commit to and recognize that the reason why overwhelmingly women are survivors of domestic violence is because, again, it is rooted in oppression. It is rooted in patriarchy. It is rooted in misogyny. And we cannot, though, forget that that same thing happens to those who identify as male in our community, and especially as those who are in our LGBTQ community and our trans members, because those same oppression tactics, power and control come into play there as well. How would a person um, identify a situation of domestic violence? I think the obvious thing that people tend to look for are um, physical signs or physical evidence of abuse and harm. So that may be the result of physical violence, so that you might see unexplained bruises or marks, et cetera. And we definitely, as a community, need to watch out for that. And I would say, you know, who that bystander is, it's your friends, it's your family, it is your colleague and your peer. Um, But as well in that, when you're thinking about, you know, hey, what's going on with my friend or family? Some of the really nuanced tactics of power and control are not necessarily physical. They can be things like isolation. So somebody is um, suddenly in a, in a new relationship or that relationship has gotten more serious and you used to be able to hang out with your friend and, and um go places with them and suddenly their partner has to be there all the time or they can't, um, they have to get permission from their partner or they're constantly checking in with their partner, like texting them or, um, you know, so technology abuse is also another form of domestic violence. So is somebody monitoring your social media? Is somebody monitoring your phone? Uh, Somebody um, looking into your emails, et cetera. So those are ways um, that abusers engage with their victims and when if you're a friend or a colleague and you hear any of that or you suddenly notice that your friend is not as available um, and checking in those are some red flags and you might just want to have a conversation and say hey I noticed this is going on Um, you know is there anything you want to share with me etc so what is legally identifiable as domestic abuse in a court of civil or criminal law? For example, are there any moves in the state of Hawaii to criminalize coercive control or emotional abuse like 
they do now in the state of California? We do include domestic abuse. We do have a couple of definitions within our statute, and intimate partner violence is definitely included in that. So that course of control definition was added in statute a couple of years ago. And as well, we have a new petty misdemeanor pilot project, so that makes domestic abuse a petty misdemeanor crime, and included in that statute is also a course of control. So there are moves, and there are, we as a community are looking at addressing that, and we are still, uh, it's a little too early to tell how effective our, our statutes are and what work we might need to do to improve it. How can we hold these perpetrators of domestic violence accountable? First, holding ourselves accountable. So much language in our community is victim blaming. We always tend to ask, why didn't that person leave? As if it is so easy to just uproot yourself, your family, and your pets in Hawaii and go find another place to live. Um, find another affordable place to live. Um, uprooting your children from their school and their and their pro- and their own processes that they have and routines in place. So why aren't we holding those who cause harm accountable by changing that question to begin with? But also, what are we doing when we hear language? How are we teaching our children about traditional gender roles? How do we talk about uh, those members in our community who use different pronouns and honor them in a really meaningful way? There are so many nuanced ways that we need to address the patriarchy and misogyny that leads to domestic violence, and it needs to start at the community level. Thank you. Is there anything else that you think that you might want to add that might be relevant to the listener out there who um, is trying to understand this for the very first time? You know, we all know someone in our lives who has probably been a victim of domestic violence. It's actually our theme for the one for the month. Everyone knows someone. Uh, This month, if you pass by Honolulu Hale, at the end of the month, you'll see that it's lit up in purple. So we hope that we you take that opportunity to really think about who might I know in my friends network and my community who might be a victim and what do I need to learn about how do I support them? I think that's a great place to start. That was Angelina Mercado with the Hawaii State Coalition Against Domestic Violence talking with HPR's Stephanie Hahn. Uh, again, Mercado, uh, Mercado says that when you drive by Honolulu Hale and see it lit up in purple, it's a chance to reflect on that phrase, everyone knows someone. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. 
This is Bill Dorman, Vice President and News Director at HPR. Thank you for supporting HPR during our fall membership campaign. We received more than half a million dollars in contributions from more than 1,100 members across the islands and beyond. HPR also welcomed more than 300 new members to our family. Your generous support allows us to bring you the essential listening you count on every day. Mahalo. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Two new tours, Music and Painting and The Ephemeral Bloom, provide insight and context around works in the permanent collection and special exhibitions. HonoluluMuseum.org slash tours. In today's, in today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you why World Polio Day is observed on October 24th. Before the polio vaccine was available, 45,000 people in the U.S. were infected. In 1947, research for a vaccine began with an American virologist, Dr. Jonas Salk, leading the team. During the development, Salk tested the vaccine on himself and several volunteers before it was deemed safe for the public. Starting in 1955, over one million children ages six to nine received the vaccine. They became known as the polio pioneers. By 1962, the number of those who suffered from the disease worldwide dropped to just uh, over 900. And today, having World Polio Day reminds us that it's a preventable, a preventable disease because of the creation of an effective and readily available vaccine. So why is World Polio Day held on October 24th? Well, it's to commemorate the birthday of Dr. Jonas Salk, who never patented the vaccine because he wanted it to be available to everyone. And congrats to Casey Rogers from Honolulu. You are our winner today. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. This week, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation announced it's committing $1.2 billion to renew efforts to eradicate polio around the world. We recently featured local stories tied to polio, which prompted listeners to call in to share their stories. We heard first from uh, Bobby Kamara, a, a resident from the island of Hawaii, who called us after hearing a story about former Honolulu City Councilman Lee White Dew's experience. Camaro contracted polio before a vaccine was developed. He was one of several children from the Big Island who became permanently paralyzed. Camaro said during the pandemic he felt compelled to tell people why they should consider getting the vaccine for COVID. Well, I contracted polio in Honoka'a in late April 1955, and that's right after the vaccine was released on the East Coast. And of course, the territory of Hawaii, I'm guessing, was not high on the list to receive polio vaccine doses. So I was unvaccinated. I got sick. Apparently, according to my parents, I almost died. I was in the hospital for four months. I went into Hilo Hospital on May 1st after being in Honoka'a for a week or so. 
And then at some point, I was flown to Oahu to the children's hospital there and came home in early September. So most of the most of the Honolulu stay was rehab. How did the polio affect you? So polio is a virus that affects places on your spinal cord where nerve impulses from your brain shoot down and out to power different muscle groups. So apparently I was almost totally paralyzed for about a week and my particular case is really spotty. My left arm is completely paralyzed and a bunch of other muscles. Um, something in my right foot, my right tricep, my pet, my left elemu, a muscle in my palm of my hand, just seemingly random things. But the most noticeable was my arm. And of course, you know, growing up in school, you get teased can't do certain things. My right leg, my right quadricep is paralyzed, so I can't run because if I tried to run and plant my right foot on the ground, I'd collapse. But I think the key in my rehab and my successful life since then was my mom. She refused to do anything for me. Like, you, boy, figure it out. You can do that. And so I'm pretty, um, I guess, outspoken these days. I don't, I don't like people who make excuses. And as far as the vaccine goes, or any vaccine, if people choose not to take them, to me, they're responsible for any outcome. And these days, you know, people who are anti-vaxxers or don't want COVID vaccines, it seems as though many of them are vaccinated for all kinds of stuff. You know, polio, mumps, measles, rubella, tetanus. COVID just turned into this big political mess. So people who don't want COVID, I pick up my arm, my you know, my paralyzed arm and I shake it at them and say, this is why you get a vaccine. And very often they don't have anything to say in reply. Yeah, I mean, this is your story. Yeah. We have to believe and understand that medical professionals are there to help us. I don't think any of them are evil or have malicious intent and would manufacture something that would purposefully cause us harm. The original vaccine for polio, when it was released, apparently had a number of people get sick and become paralyzed and die. But they figured out what the problem was and fixed it. And now, you know, polio was on the verge of being eradicated. Right, but it's making a comeback now in London, yep. in the U.S. Yeah. Yep. Because and, people aren't vaccinated. Right. And, and the, the, you know, I think the threat is low comparatively, but it's still worrisome when you know that, like you said, we've just about eradicated it in the U.S. And, and these, are, these are cropping up, from my understanding, like Orthodox communities um, in New York and in London where they don't, you know, they choose not to get vaccinated. Yeah. But, you know, people who are not vaccinated, and I, you know, I'm very respectful of people's religious beliefs, but you end up having a reservoir of people who can potentially be infected. And everything is great until you get infected, you get really sick, and then you get paralyzed. And then what do you do? And this is 
in, in a lot of cases, permanent paralysis. Yep. Uh, and then there is also the post-polio syndrome that I've been learning about. Correct. And are you dealing with that too? Yep. You know, decades after the initial infection, 30, 40, 50 years afterwards, it's almost as though you get reinfected. But the way I think about it, when you have polio, you have muscles that are paralyzed, and then you have muscles that compensate for those that are paralyzed. And after a while, it seems that the compensating muscles say, okay, I've worked enough overtime, I quit. And so they stop doing what they were doing, and your other muscles go into decline. They get progressively weaker. And once that starts happening, they can't re-strengthen. You can't reverse it. And the curve downward varies. You know, yeah. it's always down, but sometimes it's super steep. And so right now, my right foot is considerably weaker than it was 10 years ago. And I'm, I'm, I'm extreme supinating now. I'm, you know, without a brace, which I now have to wear, I'd, I'd walk on the outside edge of my foot. So right now, I use a walking stick. You know, that just kind of helps with balance. To me, as remote as the possibility of, you know, catching polio is, go get vaccinated. And go get vaccinated for all the other stuff that we get vaccinated for, too. That was one of our listeners, Bobby Camaro, who reached out to us after hearing an interview that we did with Lee Waidu, a polio survivor. Uh, Camaro came down with polio at age four and continues to live with the disease. And following that story, uh, Susan Aldoyle shared her recent diagnosis with post-polio. Growing up as a polio survivor, well, it gave her the empathy to thrive as a nonprofit executive. She served as CEO of Aloha United Way and CEO of the uh, Young Women's Christian Association. But she really didn't talk about having polio, which she contracted in 1954. Her left leg is weak, but only recently was she diagnosed with post-polio syndrome. So I've had it all my life, and I've lived with, you know, very, what, what I have to say, most people would consider very minor effects, but I'm reminded of having had polio every day. And a couple of years ago, I started noticing that I was stumbling more and maybe it seemed a little harder to get uphill and that kind of thing. So I went to my doctor and ended up getting referred to a neurologist who said, yeah, I think it's post-polio syndrome. There's nothing we can do about it. So you just, we'll check it every year and you just have to get used to the idea that you're going to get weaker and weaker and eventually if you live long enough, you won't be able to walk anymore. So that's kind of where I am now. I'm just grateful that I can still walk. Um, but I have that to look forward to. Wow. And so you shared with us that, you know, after hearing some of these other polio stories that you were just reminded of how painful it was for your family dealing with this at a time when there was so much uncertainty. Yes, exactly. And you know, the thing that really struck me was that I really wanted people to know that my getting polio was so traumatic for my mother that I was probably 35 or 36 before she could even bring herself to tell me what happened when I caught the disease. And she told me it, it was 1952, I was just learning how to walk, one morning I couldn't sit up. and. She just knew right away what it was. So she, but she bundled me up and the state of shock just 
went out to wait for the bus, caught the bus down to Chalkpan Clinic downtown, and then sat in the waiting room in a daze. She didn't try to rush herself in. She just sat there on one of the benches, and when she finally went up, when it was her turn, the people at the reception desk just bustled her into the back room where a doctor took a look at me, and he could already tell by measuring my legs that the muscles in my left leg had already started to atrophy. So my sister and brother tell me, well, I remember you being in the hospital, and I remember we couldn't see you except through this little window in the hospital door. And um, then for years after, my mom um, had to massage my legs, and she took me to the beach to walk in the wet sand to try to strengthen them. And then she just held, held this sense of guilt, I guess, for 35 years after that. And it just made, made me so sad to think that my getting this disease had caused my mom so much pain. So I guess I just wanted your listeners to know that if they're thinking about this taking their chances because it's not likely that their child will get this disease, but they should think of, it's, it's not just a disease that will affect that child for the rest of their lives, but also something that will affect their whole family. And it's something that could be prevented by a simple shot. And I really hope that they do get their children vaccinated. You know, in your email to us, you know, you talked about just the difficulty of, you know, being a kid and having to wear special shoes to school and maybe getting teased about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it seems like a little thing, but when you're a kid, you know, it makes a big impression. Well, obviously, since I'm talking about it now, um, I remember going to, I went to Paula school when I was small, and I remember sitting under that big... Um, banyan tree in the yard and not being able to run and play the same way the other kids did and having to wear these um, ankle-high brown boots. You know, in elementary school, a lot of kids don't wear shoes at all, (laughs) right? And I just remember having to wear these ugly brown boots for years um, to keep my, you know, to support my feet and legs. And it, um, you know, it made an impression. They let the kids laughed at me because I had these funny-looking shoes and I couldn't go barefoot. And then I remember it was just a huge deal when I got quote-unquote regular shoes. You know, Mary Janes were popular in those days. Um, and I didn't get them until I was like in nine years old in fourth grade. I remember it being them being blue and it was a big deal. Yeah, but just like you said, simple things like that where you are different and then right. the effect that has on you psychologically as a, as a, as a young person. Um, and, you know, I'm a, a lover of Hawaiian music and mm-hmm. dance, and uh, I tried taking a hula class at one point in time. It took for several years, but one thing I noticed is because I couldn't flex my ankle enough, I couldn't do all those hula moves as nicely as you'd like to be able to do it, you know, so it's just... Mm. Things like that that just remind you, as I say, as you go through a day, that there was this thing called polio, and it was really prevalent in the 50s and before, and we have almost eradicated it in the world, 
And we just don't want it to get a hold again. So many people know you, you know, as having this, you know, successful career in the nonprofit world, and, and maybe maybe never knew that uh, you had polio. Yeah, um, I didn't advertise it a lot. Uh huh. Um, but <laughs> if you look at how I dress, I always wore long pants, and the mm. reason for that is because my left leg is atrophied. And it's like just begging for somebody to make a comment or mm-hmm. notice, you know. But we are not good about inclusion in our society. And I didn't want anything to distract from the mission of the organizations that I served. It just gave me a sense of um, empathy, empathy, perhaps, yes, with yes. people who have challenges of different kinds. And, Virtually everyone has something. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for reaching out. I, I really do appreciate it. And, um, yeah, oh, thank I'm, you. I'm hoping thank that, yeah, your... it will at least make people think about this, you know, and what we can do yeah, to protect I mean, ourselves. That's, that's all we can do. I yes. Mean, I, I, you know, I'm not used to talking much out of the world anymore, mm-hmm. but I just thought it was important. Yeah, so well, if it helps, that's great. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate Thanks, you uh, reaching out. That was Susan Aldoyle, a retired nonprofit executive and HPR listener, sharing her story about surviving polio. In honor of World Polio Day, which is Monday, October 24th, we will be rebroadcasting those original interviews that prompted those listeners to share their stories with us. And we hope you join us then. Well, that is it for this Aloha Friday. And a reminder, you can listen back to our shows on the conversation page on our HPR website. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pope, Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. The Beckard Quiz Theme, written for us by John DeMello, and our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.